After years on the road, Timmy parked the van and picked up the mic to bring you this podcast that features interviews with people from hardcore to hair metal. This is Talk To Me with your host, Joshua Toomey. Hey guys, what is up? Welcome to Talk To Me episode 52. And on this episode, I speak to Barry Donegan of Look What I Did. And also Tyler Caruso of Absence of Despair, a little two for Talk To Me Tuesday for you guys. So I hope you enjoy. So let's get to some sponsors so we can get to our show. You guys know that the Talk To Me podcast is always brought to you by Puck Hockey, and that's P-U-C-K-H-C-K-Y. They are a brand rooted in the hockey culture, but it revolves around the customers. The main focus is and always will be creating engaging, unique, quality products while providing generous, attentive, and respectful customer service. Imagine that as a fan, you could feel a closer bond with the athletes, musicians, artists, and other cool brands that you follow all while participating in a huge celebration of hockey. That is the creative vision of the Michigan-based hockey brand and the company, Puck Hockey. So head over to puckhockey.com, and once again, that's P-U-C-K-H-C-K-Y.com. Shop until you drop, and when you check out, enter TALK, T-A-L-K, at checkout for 10% off your entire order. Yes, TALK, T-A-L-K, for my listeners, for 10% off your entire order. Also, head over to Amazon.com. Search out the Talk To Me podcast, and that's T-A-L-K-T-O-O-M-E-Y. Get yourself a Talk To Me t-shirt. How cool will you be with all of your friends if you own a Talk To Me t-shirt? They come in men's sizes, women's sizes, and even kids' sizes, so you can outfit the entire family in Talk To Me tees. So head over there, get one today, and Amazon writes me a nice little check every time you guys order one, so it helps out tremendously with the podcast. Get yourself one today. It will be so appreciated. Also, if you want to support the podcast monetarily, head over to patreon.com slash talk to me and become a supporter over there. I've had so many people jump on board lately. I've got a special edition of the Talk To Me podcast about to go up on Patreon for my supporters over there. I had a nice little chat with Chris Senzak and Aaron Camaro of the Decibel Geek podcast when I went down to Farm Rock the other day. Uh, That will be going up for my VIP listeners. Such a cool conversation I had with those guys, and uh, that'll go up there. And if you want to support, it's very easy. Just head over to patreon.com slash talk to me. Select the tier that you would like to support, and uh, I will send out a nice little gift bag to everyone that supports the podcast. And once again, thank you guys for listening each and every week. Please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast Addict, however you get the podcast. Go give a five-star rating, give a nice review, and I will read some reviews on a future episode of the Talk To Me podcast. Hey, hey, this is Chris Kale from Five Finger Death Punch. You're listening to Talk To Me. Just like Jack So last Saturday night, I drove down to Nashville, Tennessee to attend Farm Rock. Got to hang out with the guys with the Decibel Geek podcast, Aaron Camaro, Chris Senzak. Love those guys. Love that podcast. Make sure and go check those guys out. But uh, it was cool to cool to uh, see those guys in person, talk to them, and uh, pick their brains about podcasting, all that other fun stuff, and also get to see some classic bands. I, I got to see Vixen. I got to see Kicks. And also got to see Vince Neil do a solo set with uh, with the Zoltan Chaney playing drums and uh, Dana Strom on bass. It was pretty crazy to see those guys, 
you know, uh, Vince Neil voice, maybe not there. He sang about five or six Motley songs, walked off stage. The rest of the band continued on without him, played like four or five cover songs of like Led Zeppelin and other uh, silly stuff. And then uh, Vince Neil came back out and played about three more Motley Crue songs and then called it a night. But uh, he played a lot of classic Motley Crue songs. It was very cool to see those songs played live. Uh, also, he played like my favorite song of all time, which is Wild Side. Gotta love some Motley Crue. And uh, it was a lot of fun hanging out and had a couple drinks with those guys and uh, sat around. And uh, it was so cool to get to see Zoltan Chaney play drums. If you have not seen this man play drums, search it out. Pause the podcast, go to YouTube right now, and find some videos of him playing for as much showmanship as that guy has. He never missed a beat, and it was pretty insane to watch him. And I um, definitely, definitely uh, recommend going to check him out. And uh, being farm rock, being in Nashville, being all the uh, nice 80s glam bands, I got to talk to a few people. Uh, talk to Phil Verone for a little bit, hopefully get him on the podcast at some point. And it was just good to see everybody out. I got to see a lot of great old friends. Uh, talked to Chad Lee for a little while. Uh, Chad Lee being on the podcast not too long ago and telling me about Farm Rock. And I wanted to, to bid on some stuff, man. He had such a, so many great things up for auction. He had a Pantera platinum record. He had an autographed Dimebag Daryl guitar. You know, had an autographed guitar signed by Ace Freely. It was all this great stuff. Uh, a little bit out of my price range. The podcast, you know, you're not, you guys aren't going to Patreon.com fast enough for me to uh for me to get on some of these auctions that chad had up a lot of great stuff a lot of good times a lot of fun and that kind of takes around to the uh, guest today i've got two guests on this podcast barry donnegan of look what i did uh he was guest on episode one uh he comes back around episode 52 and you guys have heard him throughout the podcast too when he comes on and does some political talk but we we try to stay away from the political talk obviously we get into a little bit but we talk a lot about the history of nashville the history of nashville rock venues IndyNet, next generation a lot of cool stuff from the late 90s early 2000s that uh, you guys will be into man we we go into a lot of cool stuff and then also tyler caruso of absence of despair uh tyler called in from lincoln nebraska while they were out on tour they were out on the uh they are out on the Murder by the Mile tours. They are out and about now uh, on the 15th, Lawrence, Kansas, at the Jackpot Music Hall, 16th, Norman, Oklahoma, 17th, Austin, Texas, San Antonio, and it goes on. So make sure and go check them out on Facebook, Absence of Despair, and check them out wherever you can. Make sure and go see them live when they come to your town. So let's talk to Barry Donigan, then we'll talk to Tyler Caruso, and I will talk to you guys momentarily. <laughs> Hey, this is Jim Brewer, and thanks for listening to the Talk To Me podcast. Not you, talk to me. <laughs> well, Mr. Barry Donigan, welcome back to Talk To Me. How goes? Once again, once again, here we are. <laughs> once again, here we are. Now, I figure we do a full-on episode, man. It's been so much uh, so much political talk, we can save that for the end of this conversation, so... Uh, Get a little bit of rock talk in, and if uh, people want to turn off after after a little while, that's cool. <laughs> I'm down with that. So we know each other from the Nashville music scene, and I was kind of curious, you know, what clubs did uh, what clubs did you start out playing in? Well, the, the first one was IndyNet, and like back in the day, um, we played IndyNet a little bit, and very quickly something something about the social click that was around IndyNet at the time 
I, I feel like if you weren't like really into their narrow favorite, like most recent, like kind of punk hardcore or whatever it was, uh, subgenre they were nerding on, that they really took a hostility towards it. And if you weren't kind of in their social group, they took kind of a hostility. It was, I don't remember which people were running at the time. Um, but we were just, you know, dudes from Antioch or whatever. <laughs> we didn't know any <laughs> of those people. Like it was our right. met crew or whatever that we knew. So we, we would go to, uh, try and play there and it would not work after the first two times. I think we'd be nervous to play there again. So we started playing, uh, at this teen club, Next Generation over in, uh, Antioch. That was yeah. failing. It was failing as a teen club. It wasn't able to come up with dance nights that were not, that were drawing people out. So it switched to bands immediately after we played a show there, which actually had about 20 people. That 20 people yeah. was really great for them. And they were like, awesome. 20 people. Let's do this. <laughs> so it changed the whole, I remember I went on vacation, came back and, uh, with my family, I came back and it had, uh, replaced the whole inside with the huge stage and they needed like a whole month worth of like book your own fucking lifestyle, like punk mm-hmm. rock bands, like blank 77s and you know, uh, all those guys were coming down and playing. He had a full calendar, a really pretty good underground punk. I mean, he had, was hanging out with some of the Smyrna punk kids or whatever, uh, who were like cleaning it for him. And they were introducing him to these bands and he was booking them. And it became a legit venue really fast. <laughs> and it kind of exploded yeah. into the peak moment of Nashville's music scene. And I think it really got slept on by the majority of the media and everything else. Yeah, it was really out of the way. I mean, you know, we, we being 12 volt negative earth, we were from North Nash, you know, in the North side of Nashville. So, I mean, that was a nice little trek out to Antioch for those, uh, for those shows that we would play out there. But if I remember correctly, when they started, and I don't know how long this this lasted, but uh, if you, you know, you went to see a show, you would tell them what band you were there to see, and that's kind of how the bands got paid at the end of the night. It was more, you know, even if the opening band, uh, you know, drew more people, that they would get paid more than the actual headliner. It was a pretty crazy little system they had going on there. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty fair system. I thought the bands got paid pretty well. I remember we would get like four hundred dollars sometimes on a show, or five hundred dollars or something, and. um of course, I ran the venue towards the end, but by then yeah. there was kind of an established system when it came to paying locals, and it was very productive because locals got paid a lot, and the venue uh, made a lot of money on the locals. And it was so uh, synergistic that it was very hard when I worked there to convince Woody to do uh, touring bands. You know, I had to really, even big ones that were going to sell the whole venue out. I mean, there's many times where if you didn't like the booking agent, you'd be like, I don't give a shit how many people it brings in. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. I don't care. We, we would have a local band, and they would bring it in, and I would get more money. So he's like, these touring bands take all the money, you know, like where you don't have any, which was reasonable. The touring bands are traveling. They need the money, but, uh, he didn't, he didn't need it because that's how awesome this, the local scene was. It was so strong. He just didn't care to have these promised slot shows at the venue. And I really, you never see in the national scene would never mention this. It didn't even exist in the national media and the mainstream media and the national media that talks about this, arts and culture in Nashville explodes or whatever. They just skipped on that whole scene. It was 600 kids shows like left and right over there. You know, like, yeah, it was a high watermark. And you think about a lot of the people in, in that scene who were in their first, first developing bands at those times who went on to do other great things. It's just like, you can go down the list and they're all over the place. You see, you see people that play in their first shows in next gen left and right all over like Jimmy Fallon whatever, like once a week, probably nowadays. Right. Yeah. The, uh, I was thinking the other day, and I, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Cave-In played there or Converge, one of the two. I can't both. remember who played there. Both, okay, both. Man, I think they might have even played together. But yeah, I remember you know, like, like some of those like early, early hardcore shows going to see those guys. And, uh, you know, to, to see that they're, to the, you know, now they're uh, established, uh, you know, veteran veteran acts, but, you know, seeing them back then. We had, a, I saw so many 15-person American Nightmare shows at Next Generation. Uh, I saw a monstrosity <laughs> there with 10 people. I saw Mastodon on there with five people. I mean, they, they called and wanted to come play. And I just like was like, hey, I invited like as many people as I had my phone. And I don't think there was, phones weren't as easy back then. You didn't have like the internet to grab people's numbers and stuff. You had like the four or five people you knew's number since you got your recent phone cricket or whatever it was. So I didn't have a lot of contacts to call in five seconds again to come to a show in like 2000 and whatever it was, zero or one or whatever. And Mastodon, for example, played a almost a private show for us. If you think about it, it was still, <laughs> there was some cool stuff coming up in those days. Uh, in next gen, I really wish that, you know, somebody had captured some evidence of it. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be a whole lot out there on the next gen, on the next gen, the club itself. It was such a, like like I said, it was kind of in Antioch, which is a suburb of Nashville. You know, to the listeners outside of the Nashville area, you know, it was it was a hole in the wall. It was a in a strip mall, you know, next to like a like a paint store or something. I feel like, and it, you know, it was a it was just out in the middle of nowhere. So it was a cool place to uh, to go out and see. And then you know, so many bands came through there. So uh, crazy history there. Yeah, it was a. Uh, I, I really appreciated. Uh, my experience there. I mean, I got to run the place. That was my first experience, like running a club. I was like 21. Um, and we were making money hand over fist when I was running the club. And I thought I was being really fair because I, I tried to give everybody an opportunity to play. Um, we were run, I'm convinced we to run, run shows on days. You know, he's like, we don't need to turn the lights on every day. And I'm like, we need to turn the lights on every day because if we're, if it's summertime, we're open every single day. We have bands playing every single day. We're going to have a, a very, uh, big calendar because there's going to be a certain number of kids that are automatically just going to get dropped off, you know, on certain days. They're just going to perpetually start going because it's always Tuesday night in the summer. There's always a show, you know, like, so, and the, it was really, really good. We just kind of got swept out underneath by the actual owner of the property because he wanted to do something else with it. And yeah. that kind of, Woody, I don't know, he disappeared. It was, it was a great synergy when it was working though. When you were growing up, what what venues did you go to? Were you uh, old enough for like Lucy's, or or was, it, was that before you? Lucy's definitely, yeah. I was. I thought today is the day at Lucy's. I was like probably I was like fifteen or sixteen. Sixteen. I probably drove to it, yeah. Um, because I was first to drive out of me and Skeet and Joey Fuller. But I drove. Uh, Skeet is in look what I did, and we've known each other since we were like eleven. So he would have been with me at Lucy's those first times I went and stuff. When it would have been, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, today's the day. That was one of the first shows. That blew my mind. I'd never seen anyone scream like that before. Um, he ripped all his bass strings off his hand. Um, <laughs> it was berserk. That was an awesome band in them days. And there was like uh, Fun Girls from Mount Pilot. And uh, what was the uh, Fun Girls from Mount Pilot? was the big band in them days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Teen Idols. Teen Idols. I don't remember ever actually seen Teen Idols, but I remember they were around and everyone had the shirts. Um, <laughs> you know, their cool leather jackets with their name on them, you know? Yeah, so I, mean, uh, I definitely had my first alcohol and whatever experiences, probably in Lucy's parking lot and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was definitely a fun time back then. And uh, like the first show I ever went to was at 328. I saw Cannibal Corpse in like 94. 
And like that was my first concert experience was going to see Cannibal Corpse, and I was just like, oh my god, that would be my crazy. friends that I went with, yeah, my friends that I went with were just like, do not get in the mosh pit, and we stayed, we stood like kind of near the mosh pit, but we stayed away from it, and then you know just going to see a show, and then you know obviously within like the next month I'd seen you know Metallica and Pantera and a few other bands, but uh, yeah, Cannibal Corpse three twenty eight was my first show. Yeah, when it comes to those kind of shows, like my my dad uh, when I was in middle school and like that age he was the duke on 103.3 wkdf the morning drive shows i don't know if you remember him the rock one of the rock station oh yeah so there was that good period of time for about middle school high school where you know my dad was the shock rock radio dude on the rock station in town in the morning drive on the way to school which means that oftentimes uh, parents would say weird stuff about him <laughs> <laughs> because he would say something offensive, maybe while I was in the car, and they didn't know he was my dad. But there, uh, he did uh, get me into like Ozzy Osbourne front row tickets and stuff when I was like 11, and I was super young. <laughs> and I saw like uh, pretty much any concert, whatever that I wanted for until as long as he worked there. And then also, um, he even got me User Illusion 1 and 2 like a week and a half before it came out. And if you remember, people were busting windows out and all kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Over that one. That was pretty legit in the day when I was like in middle school. I was like the only kid that had that like way early. Yeah, to get a record early back then was, you know, you were, you were, you had to know somebody that knew somebody. You know, you couldn't just download There was no internet. So. You were the human leak. <laughs> yeah, right. You were the human yeah. leak of an album that people were busting the windows out and spending the night for two weeks ahead of time and stuff trying to get. Yeah, you had to have been like the coolest person at school <laughs> for, for a week and a half at least, right? It was a good, strong week. <laughs> So what's it like growing up with uh, with your dad on the radio? What's it like? Uh, you know, was that normal to you? I mean, was he was he always in the radio business like your whole life? Yeah, I remember like when I was four or five, like he was doing this Purple People Eater thing on the Nashville Network. He was like a writer, a comedy writer for the Nashville Network for like Ralph Emery's show and stuff. And he uh, and he would he would do. Uh, he also had a uh, music video show after. Saturday Night Live on Channel 4 in, like, 1979 called Miscellaneous that was, like, uh, music videos and stuff. And he had a lot of cool... And he was, like, the host of it. Well, him and this other guy were the host. Um, so in the national market after Saturday Night Live, he would be on. So, I mean, it was kind of like my whole life. He was always doing stuff like that. Um, so it seemed very normal. I was on the radio myself the first time when I was seven. And so that was extremely... I was extremely normalizing, I guess. And to be honest, you know what's funny is a lot of times, okay, we've done a lot of radio interviews with Look What I Did in particular. I do them a lot politically, but politically it's more like, it's more of an expectation that you're going to talk about a subject. Whereas on, when you're doing a radio appearance as a band, it's kind of more, you know, bands are not great at talking, so they usually try and minimize that. <laughs> yeah. But what's funny is you go do these serious, like take over the show on serious radio things in dc yeah. and like when we would go in there like they would give whiskey to everybody and there would be like almost a whole tour package in there in, in a live mic and there would be the, the lady or whatever and she would lose control and she would be drunk and everybody would be drunk and we'd get to the point where i knew that in order for this appearance not to be a complete waste of time that i would need to just take over the show and sort of like run the show verbally and right. the t experiences i had with daddy all those years at you know different things that he would have me come into and observe, I just kind of had a sense for 
you know, thinking about um, the person who's listening, does this sound like your voice is even in a, a kind of a pattern of speech that somebody wants to listen to? Are you audible? Is the thing that you're saying, uh, you know, are you running into huge gaps of dead air? This kind of stuff on a lot of radio broadcast obviously makes a whole difference. So um, when everybody's just screaming at each other drunk, <laughs> <laughs> right. you can't make anything out. It's, it sounds like a party, a live mic in a party room. Yeah, but that is well. That's the one thing I've. That's the one thing I found doing the podcast is like you know the the podcasts I listen to tend to be like, you know, wrestling podcasts or or comedian podcasts. And I don't care for wrestling at all. I just enjoy the stories. But then I I sat back one day and, and thought about it. I mean, you know, it's it's hard for uh, you know to do a musician podcast because musicians aren't known for their speaking. But the reasons that, you know, you end up liking your wrestling podcast is because that's what that guy does. He tells stories on a day to day basis, you know, screaming at the crowd, you know, trying to rile somebody up. You know, that's what they do for a living. They speak. And then a comedian, you know, same thing. It's like, that's what they do for a living. They speak. So when you, when I sit down to talk, interview a, a musician or, or even a, you know, someone that's done one of their only their first interviews, they don't have a whole lot of stories. And it's, it's, it's like pulling teeth sometimes, you know, it's, it's hard to get those stories out of them. Yeah, and, and they don't have much, you know, to say, and they're afraid to say anything because a lot of times they'll be excoriated because they'll gas. I mean, they don't understand how not to gas, which is weird because they have like huge communities that they do serve. I mean, there's a political element to being in a band. Like if you're, you know, if you're in an emo band, you, there's a whole line of sort of viewpoints you better have, or you will not fit in. You know what I mean? Like, so I mean, there's a there's an array of like you know political concerns that they're they're savvy at navigating, but they don't do it in speech. They just you know, do it in short statements and, and play music and try and stay quiet for the most part. And the only time you hear about outspoken musicians are usually in trouble. <laughs> and they right. use that to generate headlines, you know, like, um, but that, that is, you know, it is a, and it's like most of these other scenarios where you wind up with a lot of people wanting to hear you talk is because you've been talking a lot and everybody likes things that you were saying and they want to hear more of it or something more often than it is. You just are good at something that has nothing to do with talking at all. <laughs> Like, it's hard to get a lot of people to pay attention to you if you don't talk a lot, I guess, about it. But musicians, like, the music is so loud that it spreads through the air and allows them to skip that. <laughs> I think, what uh, too, what you get is if you get a, a band in a room together and they, they're all, they all have their own mic, you end up with a whole lot of inside jokes and innuendo that just don't make any sense, once, you know, to the, to the outside listener. Yes, that is the worst. That's, that's one thing I try to always, like, Talk to look what I did do when we were going into interviews to be careful about inside jokes that other people don't understand. Like the perspective of the listener is just got to be the number one focus. You got to think, what is the person listening to this getting out of what I'm saying right now? That's the objective of everything, you know, in uh, something like conveying speech, I guess, to an audience where they're just listening. You know, like if the minute they lose their train of thought, paying attention to you, it's over. (laughs) We might as well not be saying anything. So kind of going back to having dad around the house, you know, being on the radio and music being around all the time, kind of when did you kind of get interested in actually, uh, you know, wanting to perform and be on stage? Well, like I got into playing guitar and doing like sort of like guitar and singing four track covers around the house and stuff. And then like um, Patrick Dampier and Brent Coleman, who later had a, a band, Keating, which toured with like 30 seconds to Mars and such. Yeah. It uh, became paper rival. Yeah. Paper rival. That was me. What, what, yeah. The one that did all that. I can't remember. exactly. I think, which, I think they, I think they were paper rival by the time they did all the touring, but yeah. 
yeah. the 36 Tomorrow stuff, because Cody from 12 Volt ended up joining that band. Yes, and um, also uh, in that later on when that band would be Evan, but I got him in the band, and then mm-hmm. later on that band turned into Point of View, and then uh, had a whole different lineup with a whole bunch more people in it. Um, Dylan Napier included, who's on one of them late shows the other night playing some with somebody I don't remember who. Um but yeah like Evan Brewer uh uh jumped into that one too very early on. But it was basically like they had needed a singer and I had been doing four track singing or whatever to some extent and had more experience on that basis than anybody else. Like and they asked me to sing and I was like I wasn't doing anything in particular, um like no fun projects in my life. Like I was just kind of not having a plan with what I was doing with myself. And so um, they wanted me to sing. They already had guitar players and stuff, so I wasn't going to be playing guitar. So I went to Europe with my family. I got, um, it was actually, we played that one show. I really enjoyed it, that IndieNet show that I talked about earlier. And then it was terrible. And then we played another terrible show. And then we played a next gen show that was terrible. And that's when, Woody decided to turn the venue into a uh, band venue, and I went on to Europe with my family. And then I, I bought uh, Angel Dust, I bought Queensrÿche Empire, I bought. I hadn't been listening to a lot of rock music that at that point in my life, so I, went, I had to reacclimate myself. I got um, No Doubt, like an old No Doubt record, and I got uh, Queensrÿche Empire, No Doubt. Uh, and something significantly heavier, but I can't remember what it was, but maybe it was Melvin's or something. And basically I just sang along loudly to all those records while I was in Europe and for like two or three weeks after that, like as often as possible. And basically just started to try to be more serious about actually singing, actually having a, a toolbox of capabilities I can use. And then that's when it's sort of from there, uh, I got really into the singing. Evan Brewer came in the band and sort of kind of went in a more progressive direction with where we were going with it because he's so good at playing so many notes in so many different ways um, that we could kind of explore uh, using the bass kind of like a keyboard a little bit. And so we were just having a lot of fun with that and experimenting. And that was kind of how I got into it. I kind of Then the promotion and the being in the band and the kind of publicity part and the performing on stage, I just really easily gravitate to that i have no problem being in front of people i have no problem drawing attention myself and wait and dealing with the attention um that's just kind of an i think that's something that a lot of people in my family kind of hold as a uh important uh principle maybe a social um you know social messaging having a social uh influence i guess there you go so I've always tried to make sure I have a lot of influence on the community around me and that I'm well-respected for what I'm trying to do. And being a band is just a really easy way to kind of uh, have, it, uh, have that kind of an outlet. And it's been uh, fun ever since. I mean, it's just so much fun experimenting with music, really. is what That's what I use as a vehicle for. I'm not really as worried about making money as everybody else in the game sometimes. <laughs> well, not everybody else. You know how it is. Yeah. But... I just, I'm always trying to play with these awesome people and do amazing jams that I get to play with these cool people and do as a lifestyle. And it's been, you know, a really rewarding thing and continues to be. 
So with your dad kind of being in the in the business and the radio side of it, was he ever you know trying to detour you from doing this, or was he always kind of into you, you know, wanting to go into music? Well, I dropped out of college my senior year. Um, highly controversial decision. I was headed to law school, and I didn't want to be a lawyer. I still don't. Um, and I went to uh, California with Look What I Did, right? Which later led to us getting a record deal on uh, Koch Combat Records or whatever, and going touring the world or the country, you know, 14 times. So, uh, but when I made that decision to go there, a lot of people in my family were really mad. And my dad gave me like $2,000 or something out of nowhere. He just kind of materialized with $2,000. It was like really right on time. I needed somebody in my back at that moment. And he made the decision at that moment to kick on. And I can understand why my family was mad. I had like a scholarship and everything to college get a scholarship to finish any college and you know I was not going to finish college and I still haven't you know but I, I have I went to, all the way to the senior year very end and I just didn't finish maybe a little bit almost as a principal of the matter I don't I don't know if I wanted to have a degree associated with my name but I wanted to have all the information from it so that was kind of the objective there yeah it's got to be rough I mean just being a parent now and my daughter is about to and she you know she's about to enter high school and, and she's already talking about college and things like that and you know she's like can I just take like a year off and we're like no you've got to go to college you got to just just buckle down and get through it and, and move on with life and and all that you know it's 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 funny being on this side of it now being on the side of the parent uh, you know on the side of the parent because you know growing up I was I lived at home probably till I was like 22 because I was, you know, constantly on tour or, you know, trying to tour or trying anything I can to continue to make it in music. And, uh, you know, my dad was very supportive of that, which was cool. But it's, you know, it's kind of funny being on the other side of, you know, my kids dropped out of high school to or I dropped out of school, college to uh, pursue music. I, I think I would probably lose it. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part a big problem with me, too, is that everyone in my family is, is honestly super, like, successful at something. And it's like, they're everyone's very bored, you know. Like, with if I didn't come home with, like, the academic award of the whole school, it was boring, you know. <laughs> if I didn't right. uh, get into the top school in the world, it was kind of like, eh, it's not really, like, up to everyone else's equivalent standard. With all fairness, I mean, I, there was a lot of success in all sides of my family in terms of even like, you know, even like my dad, like with his radio show, you know, like in my, uh, grandmother was regional solicitor of the labor department. She was like an appointee of an appointee of the president. And like my grandfather worked on the Redstone missile project, which put the first satellites into space. He was like a rocket scientist. So they they were really, you know, high expectations in me. <laughs> right. All along. So that's kind of like always been a, an issue. Is that a lot of times I would get railroaded into stuff because I was good at it and I was succeeding at it, but I didn't care about it at all. And I, a lot of my life has been spent resisting those, <laughs> resisting doing those things to some extent. So I can focus on what oh, I yeah. actually care to pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, you know, and your dad being also one of the coolest things in the world is being the voice of the Titans, the Tennessee Titans Stadium. I mean, that's got to be cool. Yeah, he does that. He does that to this day. I actually have not gone to a game, which I should probably do at some point. But that actually is kind of weird, though, for your dad's voice to be booming over the game. You know, it's no, it's great. And, a little. And the last surreal. time I uh, the the last time I went to a game, they uh, 
they've up, you know they upgraded the sound system there a couple of years ago to like this insane like you know sound system that's throughout the entire stadium and they someone i guess must be a metalhead that's you know in in charge of the music because at kickoffs they were playing Slayer and Pantera and Megadeth and like all kinds of just you know Rage Against the Machine and Marilyn Manson and then you know there's your dad like you know fourth down and two from the you know that everybody has a your dad impression and it's it's great. <laughs> I mean mine was legit friends with like L7 you know so yeah. <laughs> that's kind of like was always influential on what my norms were like my family is southern but it's very libertine everybody's you know my grandmother had honestly you know her one boyfriend was the mayor of huntsville another boyfriend like she had multiple boyfriends most of the time that i knew <laughs> so did my grandfather and they, they they were still kind of together you know unofficially that was unusual but so i don't know it was, you know it was kind of a cool uh that sort of upbringing yeah it was definitely majorly influential also on becoming a part of Nashville's counterculture. Cause you remember back in the day, it was kind of like not cool to be anything, but like a mainstream folks in Nashville yeah. to like a great degree. It was like kind of almost dangerous to have a countercultural appearance at one point. You could be beaten for it at school and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely, uh, you know, I, I went to Andersonville high school, you know, that's uh later became where uh, Taylor Swift went to high school and, I think me and like three other dudes were the only, uh, you know, guys with long hair there. Everybody else was into, you know, uh, whatever rap was going on or whatever. But yeah, it was a very, uh, small segment of the population was into music, into good music. And, uh, so just kind of growing up in that area. And then actually, you know, I kind of moved away probably the first time 10, 14 years ago. And then I've been back a few times for, you know, some extended periods, but, you know, just to see the town of Nashville grow from like the late '90s to where it is now, it's insane. It's insanity watching, uh, you know, how cool how cool of a town it's become. You know, from where it was, you know, just uh, just mere, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, it's gotten kind of weird to a degree. I kind of hope that they don't accidentally erase over everything that was happening here until like it didn't happen before. But there's a yeah, it's pretty crazy, man. They keep they keep tearing all the building, you know, all the classic buildings down and stuff, and it's uh, a lot of history there that they kind of need to need to preserve. Yeah, and even like swarms of bands who are not from here and have been here for even a year claiming Nashville. It's kind of like they outnumber the number of people who actually were here before that. <laughs> it's kind of like they can create a Nashville town and speak for us and not even be from here at any time. They're, you know. <laughs> well, I thought it was funny, you know, late 90s, you would start going to shows and you'd see the guys from like Nelson and the guys from Cinderella and Slaughter and all those guys started kind of popping up and, you know, Brett Michaels would be around and you're like, why is the entire Sunset Strip coming to Nashville? And because now the it's a bargain music like, you know, industry. We're the, right. we the low budget music industry. We have all the same stuff at one millionth the price. And, and you can get like so much stuff here for so little money that it's changing because they keep coming with all their giant money and inflating the price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just back in town uh, two weeks ago. It was just, it was, it was beautiful to see that skyline when I was headed downtown. But uh, yeah, it was a, uh, just so crazy seeing the town I grew up in changing so much. Yeah, exactly. So, what kind of got you into the politics side of everything? You know, what got you, uh, you know, motivated to to write for you know the truth and media and stuff like that? Well, politics was something that, like, I guess my family has always kind of pushed on me as as far as like having a some kind of a viewpoint. My grandmother even always said that I should always get tattoos that I could cover up with a watch and whatever else, so that if I ever want to run for office, I could still do it. And which I actually have followed that rule, although I don't think it would matter anymore. But, um, like, it, she would probably have ran for Senate. My 
uncle also has run a lot of, uh, been a campaign manager for a lot of uh, state level Republican candidates in Tennessee. And basically, I was extremely politically like radical, probably for most of my 20s. And I didn't even use banks. I, uh, I didn't participate in writing my name on much anything. I tried to be as, almost like off the grid. And then probably Ron Paul's presidential campaign. I was always a libertarian ever since college because I had a political science degree. And I was going to go into the law, the law, you know, but there was, a, you know, there was an end goal that ends in politics with me, like whether one way or the other, it seemed like from a very early on time, like on a certain level, when the Ron Paul campaign happened, I felt like there was a possibility that viewpoints like mine could become mainstream. So I joined the Republican Party and I ran for office kind of as a joke in the um, the county party leadership. And, but I just, as my wild joke, I tried to just say what I felt for real, like that George Bush is one of the worst presidents, all sort of stuff to a lot of the people. And uh, there was a group of Ron Paul supporters that were all running. One of my friends was running for vice chair. And just through a, a web of intrigue, it turned out that I got elected by this caucus of conservatives. <laughs> and then I served on the Republican Party executive board for two years following that, where I had to, you know, the politicians had to come beg me for money so that, you know, uh, from the party and all this. So it, then politicians all began to know me pretty well. I started running these breakfast events where all the pre- gubernatorial can- candidates came out and met with the community. And then we got a libertarian-leaning Republican guy, uh, Steve Dickerson, elected to the state Senate in Nashville. He was one of the first Republicans to get elected in Nashville in, like, I don't know, decades. And um, we, uh, you know, as far as a new seat that had transferred from blue to red, basically. But he's, like, uh, the guy who is putting in all the medical marijuana. He's the one that got the where you don't have to go to um, the doctor each and every time to get birth control. You can go just to the pharmacist. It's cost what it costs less. He's, he's put in some really good bills. He's also made it where if you're on heroin and you find out you're pregnant and you go to the doctor, they won't uh, automatically put you in jail or take you through kid to CPS as a, so that they can get a hold of the girl and get her off the drugs under the hospital yeah. supervision so the baby won't die. Um, he has some really good policies, and I'm glad we got to uh, – I worked really – I went with him personally door to door, like knocking on people's doors over that guy's campaign. So there was, and then after a while, like I started writing for various publications and with truth and media, they kind of picked me up at a point and then the traffic was super viral through them. Um, and it was more just straight journalism kind of with a lean towards, you know, focusing on the stories that the mainstream media kind of avoids because of their corporate interests. And, um, they gave me a platform to really express myself. So I, I would do some op-eds and stuff there as well. Um, the National Libertarian Party would share those op-eds and stuff sometimes and other things. Some of them would go pretty viral, like 100,000 people would share them in like a couple of days. That was a really cool uh, cool outlet, but that, they just kind of quit doing written content maybe like a month ago. So I just don't do that anymore now. I'm not sure what to do because of this uh, campaign coming up, you know, it's getting weird. Yeah. Like, I used to be a Republican officer, but I don't know if I can identify as a Republican under Trump. Uh, I really like the Libertarian Party's, you know, Johnson and Weld combo. They're really destroying and they're, and they're almost qualifying for the debate and they're making, they've raised like $20 million and then more money's coming. And then Weld is like running off, you know, just bragging about all this money he's grabbing. 
And he's the kind of guy that does not joke around about money. He's rich. He's like elite, elite. He's the kind of guy that his his grandparents sent people over on the Mayflower to get the place ready for them, servants. And they <laughs> wow. it, they asked him during his gubernatorial race, they're like, how do you get money? And he's like, our family doesn't get money. <laughs> we have money. You know? Like, <laughs> nice. So this is the kind of folks that's with the Libertarian Party right now. So this game kind of a, the intrigue is complex right now. I, I could see myself trying to do something, jump on board with them or something, um, if they're becoming more effective. All right. So a few months ago, you know, you were coming on mo- monthly doing the uh, political, you know, breaking down politics for the podcast. But uh, you know, you were the kind of the first one I heard talking about Gary Johnson. But then uh, you know he's. Uh, popped up a lot lately, and I even texted you the other day that I was like, "Hey, he was just on Joe Rogan for like three hours and just him talking." And uh, I think Joe didn't take it very, uh, didn't take it light on him. I mean, he he definitely grilled him. You know, he didn't just give him softballs for the entire three hours that they were on. Um, he he had a couple of crazy ideas that I think are are a bit, you know, could be great, but they're they're way outside the box. You know, de- destroying the IRS type stuff and. Uh, but I think a lot of the you know a lot of the stuff that he had was 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 great, you know, great ideas for the for the country. So I'm mean, you know just kind of wondering you know, I mean, is Gary Johnson an actual viable candidate? Gary Johnson, you got to understand, Gary Johnson's serious as a heart attack. People yeah. uh, mistakenly underestimate that dude all his life. Like he is the kind of guy he started with nothing. He went door to door handing man business. He got a thousand employees within like a couple of years. He had millions and millions of dollars. Now he's rich. So he decides he's going to run for governor. He's annoyed that all these special contracts are getting handed out to these other guys. So he runs for governor and then he wins governor. And everyone says you can't win governor. There's never been a Republican getting elected a governor there or whatever. He just runs as a Republican, even though he has sort of libertarian viewpoints. I mean, he didn't really subscribe to anything, but he was just happened to be kind of libertarian leaning. And he runs for governor and then he wins reelection by a huge margin. And then, um, He's vetoing everything inside. He vetoed the budget. He's he's like cut a lot of uh, unnecessary fat out of the government, like a businessman kind of would do. And then, um, he, but he was massively reelected by Democrats. You know, so whatever he was cutting, most stuff they didn't care too much that he had cut it, which is kind of the, the key to cutting government. Just kind of sneak it around where the Democrats don't get mad about it. I guess that means you probably picked the right stuff. But like um, he. Um, on a certain level, after that, like there became the issue of marijuana because it was coming up uh, with Bill Clinton, and he came forward and was like, "I've used marijuana before. I inhale on purpose." He's at the point, and like, by the way, it should be legal because it would be safer than alcohol. And that was kind of like a radical jump in the marijuana acceptance sort of movement that is now taking hold nationwide. And he also had a marijuana company right when it became legalized. I mean, he's been on uh, he's part responsible for legalization if you really think about it. When you think about the number of media mentions he's created for the just for the cause over the course of his life. And that's coming true in front of our eyes. And now he has he's like a CEO of big marijuana. That's something to think about. People people talk about it as a kooky thing, but it's not a kooky thing, man. They're making money <laughs> and that's real money. Right. You can buy real advertisements with it and you can become a huge player in politics by lobbying with those that kind of money. He's now associated with the Weld candidate. Now, Bill Weld was a Massachusetts Republican governor, the first one elected there in 30 years at the time that he did. He was socially liberal, pro-choice, uh, pro-legalization, uh, to the point where the Republican Party drummed him out of an a, uh, appointment to an ambassadorship over his support of medical marijuana. And um, he gave a speech 
a live and let live kind of uh, get the government out of your bedroom speech to the Republican National Convention in 1994 that really offended everyone. And then uh, <laughs> he was massively reelected in Massachusetts, and he fired like a thousand government workers, which is really hard to do in Massachusetts. That is the most liberal state in the entire United States. I mean, if you think about it, and that was what he was governor of, and he was like, you know, basically slashing government programs for the most part as majority of what he did. So when you look at it, like they're both successful Republican governors from blue states that got massively reelected where the balance, all the stats related to their governorship are very good versus investigation. Uh, Clinton with her investigations from the FBI, God knows what she's going to do with emails. Is she going to text, you know, the accidentally text the nuclear codes to, you know, the Saudi Arabian King or whatever. I mean, you know, and then you got Donald Trump that's going to just randomly nuke, you know, <laughs> Barbados because he didn't like the <laughs> facility there that he stayed at, you know, like, <laughs> and so you got these two guys and their governors and we've already, we don't have to roll the dice and see what happens when they, when they lead, uh, when they lead, I mean, they've got a governorship. That's the same thing as being president, kind of a state. So they deal with the same thing. They do vetoes, they do budgets uh, the same way, uh, raising, you know, awareness of what they'd like to see in the budget. So they're, it's the same role. They've already done it. They were really well liked. They could possibly win their own state. They could possibly win some of the Western states. And Mitt Romney is considering endorsing them because he's friends with Bill Wells. They could possibly get Koch Brothers money. And you're talking about a Mitt Romney endorsement turns Mormon states into mm-hmm. in play. Like they could possibly win Idaho. They could possibly win uh, Utah. They could possibly win Nevada. They could, they could possibly win Massachusetts with his support. And that would throw the election to the House of Representatives, which would change America forever. <laughs> right. Well, I was thinking, like, mathematically, I mean, you've got, you know, half of the Democrats that were going for Bernie that, you know, don't want to support Hillary. And then you've got the tons of Republicans that don't want to support Trump. And then you've got this third alternative out here with Gary Johnson. And if he can just gather up all those, you know, those, those naysayers and uh, people lying, lying, uh, trying to find someone uh, to vote for. And then you've got, you know, and then plus the American population doesn't vote, period. So, I mean, if you can convert the uh, people that don't actually vote into actually going to vote for you, you know, you've got that, too. So it's just I think this is like the one year that like a third party candidate could win because the, the Hillary versus Trump. And I've seen it. I've seen it on Facebook. I've seen people like I don't want to vote for either of them. And I said, well, what about Gary Johnson? Like, oh, well, that's just throwing your vote away. And I'm like, no, like I truly think this year is the one year that that third party could come through and uh, actually pull it off. Yeah, I, I feel like you can almost turn around and be like, a vote for if you vote for either of them, you're voting for the other one of them because they're you know, stealing votes from Gary Johnson because Gary Johnson's the one that's like a governor and a normal person, and he's about to qualify for the debate. I mean. This is happening. This is going down. I mean, something's happening. Whether it's a bunch of elected officials have switched from the Republicans to the Libertarian Party out of nowhere, like at least like six in the last week. They're they're elected already. They're serving in office. They switched away from the party that got them elected, and then now we're gonna have to jump on a ballot a new way. That's how much of a risk they're willing to take. So it's going down, man. I'm I'm excited to see what happens next. They've raised the city raised over twenty million dollars already. They only raised two million last time. The entire time. What's the uh? He's at like what twelve percent, and you have to be at fifteen. Is that what the uh, the yeah the, fifteen the is? in five national polls? And have to be like Fox News, Quinnipiac, uh, ABC News, those kind of polls, uh, or you know uh, the university polls, major university polls. It has to be nationwide polls, and they have to be fifteen percent. And right now they're polling at a pretty steady twelve. And uh, you know that that was before they did all the media, and they went on Colbert, which is a nightly show. They went on. Uh, 
every single one of the other shows. They were on every show. They went on the Sunday shows. They're they've had so much more media publicity. It's got to have pushed them up those three points, especially with Sanders kind of fizzling out right now. Probably yeah. looks like he's going to endorse Clinton and piss everyone off, and then they're going to be like, "Why do we do all this? We just waste our time punching people at the Trump rallies for no reason." <laughs> now I got criminal <laughs> charges on me from what I had to do with this Bernie Sanders rally I was at. So what the hell am I supposed to do now? And then they're going to be like. Gary Johnson, man, maybe because he's pro-choice even. So a lot of the super liberal folks will find a lot of his views attractive, and he's also a marijuana recreational marijuana user who quit to run for president. So he will he will approach it as if he were in civilian life, he would choose to smoke marijuana because it's safer for him than alcohol, and he would emphasize how he climbed Mount Everest with a broken leg. <laughs> he's a he's a health nut, and he could he could chase you down and like beat someone to death. He's not like a he's a physical athlete at 60 something. So he's the kind of person that you would want kind of normalizing that. And if he gets in a debate at a bare minimum, he will normalize recreational marijuana and it will probably be nationwide legalized much faster. And I feel like it's almost inevitable. He's going to get that opportunity to at least make that case if nothing else. And that, that honestly, I could see libertarian party becoming the marijuana party temporarily as a way to bring some, uh, you know, uh, legislators over Kind of like how it happened with the Republican Party in slavery in, 19, in 1861 or 60. They, they basically came to exist over the issue of slavery um, for the most part. So that is, you know, I guess some of the union uh, tariffs they were pushing for kind of coalesced that. But they kind of destroyed the weak party. And that was kind of how it happened. When the legislators swapped over, they had a, a weird presidential election with like a populist and, and uh Jack Andrew Jackson and then um but yeah, it was real similar to these times. And I could see unfortunately that ended in a civil war, so I hope it's not that similar, but <laughs> <laughs> So uh, just uh just on the Trump and Clinton side of it, I mean there, is anything Trump's saying in the last you know few days, obviously with the uh the, the terrible mass shooting in Orlando uh, you know, he kind of came out with that terrible tweet of like, you know, where are my thank yous and all that stuff. And he's just atrocious uh, right now. He's talking about he's talking about uh, spying on Americans now. He's talking about bombing Libya when he was talking about staying out of Libya, and he's just all over the map. There's no telling what he's going to say. I mean, he could kill anyone with a nuke any any moment. He's just unhinged, you know. Like, and then Clinton, of course, comes out right away back, uh, promoting gun control on that issue. You know, within moments, Gary Johnson was like. You know, let's, let's, uh, you know, gave his sympathies and then talked about let's listen to the investigators and figure out what the details are and then we'll determine the solution once we do that. <laughs> yeah, the one thing I appreciated about, uh, the one thing I appreciated about Gary Johnson was his, you know, what he's kind of doing and he's almost like kind of catering to the millennial or to, to the younger generations by, you know, just going on podcasts. I mean, he was on Adam Carolla, he was on Joe Rogan, you know, he's just out there like, you know, Reaching people in different ways, you know, I would never see Donald Trump or Bill, Clinton, or I'm sorry, Hillary Clinton going on, uh, you know, the Joe Rogan podcast or Mark Maron or something like that to to kind of further their cause. Donald Trump doesn't use email, and, and he has an assistant to do the email. He's never used one. Think about that. <laughs> Hillary Clinton is obviously terrible at emails. We've determined that. <laughs> so these people, they're going to run the United States where we all send emails and stuff. Maybe they need somebody who knows how to do an email. You know, somebody. Turns out, at least I know uh, Gary Johnson can. He's pretty savvy, you know, on his cell phone and stuff, climbing mountains and all that. 
Yeah, this whole this whole gun control thing, you know, I, I was debating it with the wife last night. You know, I was just like, it's my uncles have AR-15s. You know, it's not like they. I would ever assume that they're going to go, you know, shoot up anything. I've shot an AR-15. It's pretty fucking fun, you know what I'm saying? Like we were out, you know, uh, you know, I was shooting uh, targets, things like that. But you know, and I, I never once. While I was holding the AR-15, thought you know what I should maybe go shoot up a club or anything. You know, it's, it's I think it's it's the user, not the gun. But you know, it's neither here nor there, I guess. I heard um, I got to run, but um, I can leave with this one thought on that one subject. Okay, I heard it said, "Why would you need a magazine that could shoot, you know, a hundred rounds?" And my answer to that is, did you hear there was a guy the other day at the club and he shot up the whole club and he hit like a hundred and some odd people? That seems like a situation where you might need a hundred rounds if you were the security guard there. Turns out the security right. guard there didn't have a hundred rounds. He just had a handgun and he was able to actually push the insurer. Um, once, once he got to the side of the facility he was on, he was able to push him into a bathroom and then the police officers were able to come in from there and do something by blowing the wall up. But imagine if he had a hundred rounds you know, he had more rounds than that guy because that guy having more rounds, I mean, he can at least fire at you and you can't even come out from your cover until he's done firing. Whereas if you have a limited round by law to only 10 rounds, after you've hit that 10th round to try and keep him, you know, suppressed, just because you don't want to have to come around and actually have a shootout with a guy with an AR-15, you know, now you've shot those 10 rounds and he hears you, you're reloading, you know. Right game over so that's yeah. my that's my little thought on the world of magazines is that this is a dangerous world and we can't do pre-crime to determine who's going to do this stuff ahead of time so sometimes they're going to pop up and when they do man if there have been two or three more armed people at that facility it might have been a lot less lives lost you know it's hard to know very but true could have been all right barry well i definitely appreciate you taking the time tonight sir and i will talk to you soon yeah awesome talk to you once again we'll talk again soon all right man be careful What's up? This is uh, Tyler from Absence of Despair. Hey, what's up, man? How you been? Pretty good. How about you? I'm doing good. Doing good. Yeah, I was just sitting here and I... Uh, actually, I was looking at your uh, Facebook page today and it looks like you were in Louisville for like three or four days. Yeah, and, we had uh, um, we got some family out there. So uh, we rolled into town Tuesday and then had a show at 3rd Street Wednesday. And then, um, okay. then uh, we actually picked up another show because we had trouble filling uh, the Friday... Uh, we couldn't get that date filled, so one of the promoters from out there is like, oh, I can book you guys at Louisville Billards uh, uh, Friday. I mean, thir- was it Friday or Thursday? Friday. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So we had two Louisville shows, and both went really well. Yeah, I mean, that sucks because I could have came down and actually, uh, you know, met, met you somewhere in the city, you know, on your day off. 
yeah. hanging out or whatever, and uh, sat down and done this, and I was like, oh, man, <laughs> I totally could have yeah. done this in person. Yeah. they're so okay. much better in person. Yeah, it's all good, dude. Oh, man. So how's the uh, how's this tour going so far? We've already started, by the way. i just uh, just letting you know. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been going great so far. Uh, turnouts have been good. Um, crowd support and reactions have been really well, as too. So I uh, have no complaints so far. Very cool. And you guys are from Rhode Island, correct? Yeah, Providence, Rhode Island. So what's the uh, what's the metal scene in Providence like these days? All right. Well, uh, Rhode Island is extremely small, as everybody knows. And um, you know, right now, you know, we have our, you know, some really good promoters. Uh, Mike Carp from uh, Rampudicon Promotions. He's like the go-to guy for like, you know, bringing, you know, bands into town and um, you know, and really, he's really built the local metal scene a lot. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty strong right now, the local metal scene. I can't lie. Are there been other bands that have came out of Providence, like the actual, like actual Providence, not just the New England area? Um, they was this band I will be done. Have you ever heard of them? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were. Uh, they're out of Providence. I don't know if they're uh, actually still together right now or anything, but um, they came out of Providence. Um, who else? Uh, well, Jesse Leach uh, from Killswitch Engage. They're from Mass, but Jesse, the singer. Uh, he's from Providence, so I mean, nice. So, I mean, we got those two right there. <laughs> That'll work, man. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier when I saw that you were from Rhode Island. I was like, I don't know many bands I've heard of that have came out of Rhode Island. Yeah, there's not a, you know, there's a lot like locally, but like bands actually go out of Rhode Island and you know do touring and like you know try to make it a career. There's uh, very few. Oh, we also have a Lives a Breed. They're uh, they're uh, some friends of ours. They're um. They're on Stay Sick Recordings now. They, um, it's the singer of uh, that band Attila, his new record label. Okay, cool. Too. Yep. So basically, you know, you guys are out doing the uh, the Murder by the Mile tour. You know, this is a I'm assuming like self booked. Um, yep. You know, just uh, just you guys out there doing the grind. Is that what, is that what's going on? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, I handle all the booking. Um, we actually brought somebody on board to help uh, book a few of the dates. Um, here and there, <clears throat> but um, you know I do the majority of all the booking. So, what do you find is your easiest way to book? Do you go through the bands, go through the venues? You know, just try to find to find a fan in that town. What do you do? Uh, what I do is, um, you know, if it's a place we've been to before, you know, I hit up you know the promoters that we've you know booked through, and, you know, see what they got available. You know, make sure it's a good promoter. Because I mean, we come across some promoters that you know try to burn bands and stuff. You know. A lot of snakes out there, but um, I usually just hit up uh, promoters that we've worked through before, see if they got the dates, and if they don't have the dates, then, you know, um, I just uh, keep digging online, asking around, and I have a whole list of uh, promoters, venues, and bands, and uh, try to throw it all together like that. Very cool. So when you find, um, like, when you know, living in kind of the Facebook age that we live in, Facebook, Twitter, all, all the social media, are you finding it's... Um, kind of easier to book tours that way or are you finding it's easier to kind of gain uh like a response in that city are you doing any kind of um you know like focused uh advertising in those areas things like that yeah um our manager actually has been uh you know uh sponsoring our posts on facebook for like you know uh the event pages and stuff like that for uh you know all the dates on this tour that way you know it um like we'll look at like a certain demographic like an age demographic with like certain interests and stuff so that'll pop up on their Facebook and stuff. That's how we've been uh, 
getting some uh, other online promotion with uh, the dates. Very cool. And when did this last album come out? Uh, Monster Reborn. We released it uh, August of last year, actually. It was late August. And was that self-produced or was that uh, through a label? Uh, we're, we're unsigned, but we recorded that CD at Spider Studios in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. It's um, uh, We worked at Tony Gamalo as a producer. He uh, works with Ben, uh, ben Shegel. Um He's the guy who did... Him and Tony both did... Uh, like all the Chimera CDs and um, it dies today. Uh, Walls of Jericho, tons of tons of bands. MGK oh, they work great. with a lot. So is yeah. that where the uh, collaboration with Mark Hunter came from? Yeah, you know we were in the studio and um, you know we were trying to you know we were trying to get someone on um, you know on one of the tracks to feature and uh, we actually were thinking about getting a uh, Levi Benton from uh, Miss May I and you know it turns out he was uh busy and couldn't do it um and then you know we're all uh chimera fans and you know since the studios worked with them a bunch uh a producer told me just like hey i could see if mark hunter could get on it if you guys want it. and we we're like for real and he's like yeah so he called him up uh worked out some stuff and he came down and uh killed it on a uh, monster reborn that's the single that he was on yeah it's a very cool song actually when i was checking you guys out that was one of the first ones that kind of gravitated to you just because you know, just also being a huge Chimera fan, and then um, uh, also had Mark Hunter on the podcast a while back too. So it's oh, a cool. natural fit for me to kind of hit that one up. And it was kind of funny on that episode. He, I don't, I don't know if he, you know, mentioned specific bands, but when I asked him, you know, kind of what he'd been up to, he said he'd been uh, doing a lot of guest vocals on bands and stuff like that. So, so yeah. when I saw you guys had, you said when I saw you guys had uh, work together, I was like, oh, well, you know, he had talked about that on the show. That's very cool. So, yeah, so dude. yeah, man, it's got to be crazy to sit back and uh, you know hear Mark on, on one of your songs. Yeah, it's real cool, you know, when you work with someone like him, you know, it's just, uh, he's been in the business for a long time, and, you know, just, like, the way he goes in, and, you know, he just, he just kills it, he knows, like, exactly what to do, and, uh, he's just, he's a professional, and it's, you know, it's really, uh, inspiring to work with someone like that, you know, you learn a lot from them. So, with, you know, with the band, um, kind of starting out, from what I gathered through the bios and things like that, I mean, you guys started in, what, about 08? Yeah, and, and kind of still trudging through. I mean, what's the, uh, you know, what's the end goal at this point? I know that, that sounded terrible. Um, you know, what's the, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, what's the, you know, uh, are you guys on a on an upward trajectory? Are you seeing, are you seeing the uh, the light at the end of the tunnel type stuff? Yeah, definitely. Um, so pretty much when we started in 2008, um, it was me and my drummer Billy. He's um, me and him are the only like two like original members left right now. So. Um, uh, you know, when we started, we were only like 15, so we were in high school, and you know, we just, um, you know, kept kept local because I mean, we didn't, you know, have a means of touring and all that yet because we were underage and stuff. And so, yeah, you know, we just built up locally and all that. Been through tons of member changes and all that. And you know, about three or four years ago, that's when you know we finally had enough money to like, you know, get a van and get a lineup that you know wants to work and fucking make it a career and everything. So. Um, yeah, last few years we've been touring and, uh, it's been really good. Um, and, uh, you know, we have a manager now as well. So he's, uh, he's helping us with like label submissions and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, it's going good. You know, end goal is just to, you know, be signed to, you know, a decent label, um, make enough money to pay all our bills and, you know, just go up from there. 
Are you finding it harder and harder, like daily, to uh, to to see that end goal? Is it you know with uh, you know with with no one buying records these days? I mean, uh, what are you guys doing to be kind of be noticed out there by labels? Um, you know, we, what we really depend on is like uh, you know, merch sales and all that. Um, I mean, it kind of sucks, you know, how nobody buys. You know, most people don't buy CDs anymore. Um, but you know, a lot of labels look at uh, you know, look at like your hits on YouTube and. You know, make sure you have a buzz going on, stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's tough. You know, selling selling music these days is uh, pretty tough. Nobody wants to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I've had a uh, I've had a few label guys on the podcast too, and it's, I always ask them. I'm like, why would you ever think of starting a label in 2015, 2014? You know, <laughs> they're all like, yeah, it's like coming out with like a rotary phone or something. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know, just have just you know, just having a you know, kind of been in the music business for for years and years. It's uh, it's definitely taken its toll and taken a turn. You know, back uh, the late '90s when I was doing music, I mean, you would put out an album, and you know, hundred, the hundred thousand was was uh, if it had a decent buzz, it would get there. But now it's, you know, if you can get a hundred thousand albums sold, you're number one on Billboard. It's an insane world. Yeah, exactly. It's real tough. You know, because too many people, you know, they, you know, they could just get it easily offline for free. You know, instead of, you know supporting the actual artists and you know spend that one dollar per song you know what i mean right i mean we spend thousands in the studio you know to put out an awesome sounding record and you know it's like you can't afford a dollar for this song you know i mean it's a little you know <laughs> right. i mean it's kind of a slap in the face but um you know since you know sales are down these days um you know for income and stuff we really uh you know it's all it's all about the touring and um you know merch so that's how that works now yeah, that's one thing I was, I've always been. Uh, it took me a long time to kind of get with Spotify. I was always kind of hesitant, and you know, I heard so many other artists talk about, you know, how they were kind of against it and they never got paid for it, and and you know, the yeah, you get like point oh 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 five cents a play, things like that. But you know, I, a few months ago, I was like, you know, I put it out to Facebook. I was like, should I check out check out Spotify? And yep. overwhelmingly, all my friends came back with, you have to, and it's it's an incra- it's an insane tool. For me, you know, I when I, you know, uh, when we were setting up this, you know, this interview, and I was like, I need to check out Absence of Despair, and I was like, bam, it's right there, entire yeah. entire catalogs there. I can listen to all of it in one swoop, and you know, that's that's the, for the consumer, it's great. Like I can be driving yeah. in the car and and think of a you know a band I haven't thought about in 30 years, and then I'm like, oh yeah, I want to check them out again, and bam, they're ho- that's right there. So I know that it's a uh, it's a detriment to the music industry on on the side of artists getting paid, but the, yeah. the consumer, it's so easy to uh, to get your music out there. So it's yeah, you know, I mean, definitely. I think. Go ahead. Yeah, we actually um, we use it a lot on the road. You know, um, like when we're just, like driving to shows and stuff. You know, we're on Spotify, check out whatever band we want. I mean, it's really good. Um, you know, but the, you know, getting paid from it's really really difficult. But I mean, you know, since sales are down so much, it's more of like you know, you put out a CD as a business proposition to get people to come to your shows and buy the merch. That's that's like my outlook on it. You know how it is in this day, right? Yeah. I was thinking that I know that there's a lot more artists out there, a lot more um, you know, like writers and uh, musicians on these albums and stuff. But I think if they can kind of take the Netflix um, model and 
you know, where, where companies or, you know, shows are basically, you know, putting out entire uh, series on Netflix and, and I'm sure they're getting paid well for that. So yeah. I would imagine one day you're probably going to see an artist be like a Spotify exclusive, uh, you know, album, things like that. So we're in, they actually might get paid a little bit more for people yeah, going definitely. to Spotify to check that out. I think that'll be the, the future of that. Yeah, definitely. For sure. That's a good idea. Uh, you know, Mr. Ideas over here, right? <laughs> <laughs> it works, man. <laughs> right, so uh, where are you guys at in the country? This Are you in Kansas? Is that what I saw? Um, right now we're in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. We're playing at the Spigot tonight. It's a cool okay. venue. We've played here a few times, so it's a big show tonight. How far out do you guys get when you guys tour? Um, it, I mean, it depends on, you know, where we, you know, where wherever we route the tours, but I mean, We've we've done full U.S. tours before and everything, and um, you know this one, like as far west as we're going is like, like Nebraska, Texas, and uh, Kansas. Like that's as far west. Um, but you know after after this run, um, we're gonna have another tour announcement, uh, probably sometime early to the first or second week of July. I'd say we'll have the announcement. We got a um, another tour for august which is gonna be really good it's gonna you know be hitting the west coast and you know a good good majority of the whole country so so when you guys get out there are you guys going out with uh other bands are you guys you know just kind of hitting up bands in each location what's the what's the main uh what's the main route of touring on these days um i mean sometimes you know we'll do uh do tours with other bands like um you know our december and march runs we uh we did uh with this band final drive they're from uh st louis missouri they're they're really cool dudes, awesome music, and uh, you know we always like going out with bands more than just going out by ourselves because you know it's just it's more fun and you know you got other dudes with you and stuff. It's cool, but um, usually like on um, you know when we do uh, tours with just us, we usually play with uh, just like local support and stuff, like a bunch of local bands. So when you're out, then um. I mean, are you guys doing the whole, you know, uh, finding places to sleep, you know, sleeping in the van, you know, uh, hopefully you've got a friend or a fan in that town that'll let you sleep yeah. on the floors. Are you guys doing that stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, um, and we got friends, you know, all, all over the place. So, um, you know, a lot of the times we'll have like a place to sleep and, uh, you know, and if we don't, you know, sometimes we get hotel with the promoters and all that. Um, but I mean, most of the time, you know, we just we sleep with a van, you know, camp out at Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, camping out at the Walmart's always great. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> uh, let's just kind of head head all the way back. I mean, what kind of got you into playing music? Who was the uh, who was like the one guitar player you saw that made you made you want to play? Um, me, my biggest inspiration that got me into um, playing guitar was um, I'd say when I first listened to Avenged Sevenfold when I was younger. I was just like I was always into metal and all that, but like when I heard them, I was just like wow, I never heard, like, all these crazy guitar solos and all these harmonies, and, you know, that really got me fired up to, you know, pick up the, an actual guitar and, you know, start learning. That's a, that's a big task right there to, to, want, to want to play something like that. That's insane. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I always like, uh, and I, I, like, I like challenges a lot. So <laughs> the first song um, I learned was uh, Backcountry. With, um, I had a, a guitar teacher at the time for, like, think about 10 months and uh you know he tabbed that all out for me and you know that was my first song <laughs> wow that's a that's huge song huge song to be your first song to ever play that's insane yeah i mean i mean it kind of it came like you know like 
it, it came kind of easy because like I always like I always played instruments through my life. Like I used to play drums. You know, when I was in like middle school, I played like trumpet and all that crazy shit, and was always in chorus and all that. So I had like a basic knowledge of a uh, music and how stuff works. So. So were you saying that Substance of Despair, was this technically like your first band? Because, I mean, you said you started it when you were like 15, or were you doing bands before that? Uh, this is my first band, um, and hopefully my only band. <laughs> um, <but laughs> Sounds I mean, like it. Some, yeah, some of the other guys, you know, they've been in um, past bands before, you know, just just do like like local stuff, you know. And um, But yeah, this is definitely, you know, my first band and last band, so, you know, I just want to go all the way with it. Very cool, very cool. And then what's like the like the best, uh, the biggest, hang on, let's see, what's like the best band that you guys have ever played with, like open for? Um, we've opened for Bullet From My Valentine and Hailstorm. That was, uh, that was awesome because like, you know, our music and Bullet From My Valentine's music, uh, you know, it's got like a similar genre, you know, it's got the heaviness and it has the clean singing and all that. So like, you know, there was like roughly about a thousand people there when we opened up and it was just like, yeah, everybody loved it. It was it was great, man. Hope yeah, when I was checking out the uh, when I was checking out the latest album, that was one thing I liked about it was that, you know your singer has a very cool growl, but at the same time he also has a very good singing voice. Yeah, it was cool, man. Thank you. It's a very good, uh, you know. It's a, I think you almost kind of have to have that to to do anything these days. But the, you know, the cool growl is good, great, you know. But if it's you know from start to finish that way, I think you lose a lot. But you know, when he came in and actually started singing, I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's you know, that was cool. We were actually checking it out in the car. I was asking the wife what she thought about it, and she was just like, you know, she was pretty into it, too. So, good stuff. Oh, start. nice. Thank you, man. You know, what's kind of the plans? What's the future for the band? Uh, plans with the future, um, you know, this for this year, uh, you know, after the big U.S. run in August, you know, we might do another tour for fall, and then, you know, we'll, you know, wrap up the touring cycle for this CD. And, you know, just start buckling down, um, writing our new, new CD. And then, um, then, uh, you know, trying, you know, looking for, you know, shopping for a good producer and studio to record at and then go from there and, uh, you know, submit to labels and all that. And, you know, just you know, start the game all over again, just go harder at it every time. Definitely. And so you've had Mark, you know, Mark Hunter of Chimera on the last one. I mean, if you could have the dream scenario, who's going to be on the next one? Uh, dream scenario. Um, for me, I'd say myself personally, I'd say probably, um, Matt from Avenged Sevenfold or, uh, Matt Tuck from, uh, Bullet for My Valentine. Yeah, that, that's me. You know, some of the other guys like, like more like heavier stuff and prefer screaming, but you know, I like, uh, <laughs> I like melody a lot. <laughs> No, it's definitely cool. Yeah, M Shadows would be great on the album. That would be a lot of fun. That would get you oh, guys yeah. a, a lot of huge buzz. And then, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> what's like one guilty pleasure, you know, CD, uh, something you might put on the Spotify? What's your guilty pleasure band? Um, I mean, I don't really get too guilty about stuff, you know, that I listen to. I'm kind of just like, oh, if I like it, I like it. But um, you know, for something that people would find a little, little goofy or, or funny, I'd say uh, Backstreet Boys. <laughs> All of us. <laughs> This is a metal band. We crank Backstreet Boys on the highway. People give us weird looks, but we're like, all right, whatever. <laughs> so when the absence of despair vans going down the highway, you're bumping uh, I Want It That Way and things like that? Yeah, all of us <laughs> singing along with it as well. <laughs> hey, that, that'll work out your uh, vocal chops there. That'll always yeah, nice. dude. That's what I love about Backstreet Boys. The harmonies <laughs> are crazy. <laughs> oh, man. 
And then, uh, so where can everybody find you guys on the internet? Where can everybody find uh, find the new latest album? Uh, internet, um, go on our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You know, our, um, our all our social media is uh, at Absence of Despair, and um, Twitter is at AOD Metal. And uh, for Monster Reborn, if you want to be a kind soul and purchase it, anybody can just go to iTunes. Um, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, uh, Xbox, and you know, all, pretty much all the uh, online retailers to buy it. Cool, man. And then uh, we'll play a song right now. What song should we play? Um, we got, we got Monster and uh, Deceiver. Uh, Deceiver is our newest single. Okay. Um, but uh, if you want to try Number to Nameless, that's cool. That's, um, that's one we haven't uh, done a single for yet, but that one's. Uh, uh, it's got that really catchy, uh, you know, upbeat chorus. So uh, you can try that. See if people like it. All right, man. We'll be safe out there. Have a good show tonight, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Cool. Thank you very much, man. Again, thank you to Tyler Caruso of Absence of Despair. Make sure and go check them out wherever they are on the internet and in your local venues. Also, thank you to Barry Donigan for coming on the podcast once again. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that conversation. Fun to catch up with Barry. Thank you guys for checking out the Talk To Me podcast. My birthday is in a couple of weeks, and I've asked everyone if they would like to get me anything to head over to Patreon.com and become a Patreon supporter. That would be so great, and I would appreciate everyone going over there, even if it's a dollar. Every dollar counts at this point. And uh, thanks to everyone who has become early supporters of the Talk To Me podcast. A lot of stuff's going to be going on over there. And if you want to hear uh, crazy stories and things like that, I'm going to be throwing a lot of those up. So... For the Talk To Me podcast, I am Joshua Toomey. I will see you guys next week. Have a great week, everyone.